You know, one of the best things about um, being an academic, because it's got so many different, um, so many different pieces to it, you know, um, was how it pushes you outside of your comfort zone multiple times a day. And on that particular day, I thought a few less would be better. I'm Becky. And I'm Rowan. And welcome back to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories of how they got to where they are today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to an, another episode of After Office Hours. Today, we had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Catherine Nightingale. Yeah, Dr. Nightingale is the Theo Pilkington Distinguished Professor of BME and also a member of the Duke Cancer Institute. Dr. Nightingale did her undergraduate and her PhD at Duke and then is now a professor here at Duke. So it was great to talk to her about her journey throughout her undergrad and her PhD and how she ended up back here at Duke and how Duke and Durham has evolved over all of that time. Yeah, and even though she's been at Duke for quite some time, including her undergrad, she actually took some time in between then and her graduate work to join the Air Force as an engineer. And it was particularly interesting to hear how the lessons she learned during that time translated to her role as a new faculty member at Duke. Absolutely. Yeah, speaking of Dr. Nightingale's lab, her work is primarily focused in ultrasound and elasticity imaging, trying to develop new imaging methods for clinically relevant applications. Dr. Nightingale is actually a personal mentor of mine, and I've had the pleasure of working in her lab as an undergraduate, where she's given me a lot of really great guidance personally, and I think this episode is definitely an insightful one, as she definitely shares a lot of advice and her experience here as well. Yeah, so without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, first of all, Dr. Nightingale, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We're really excited to talk with you. Um, I kind of just wanted to start at the very beginning, kind of know where you're from and what kind of things you enjoyed doing when you were a kid. When I was a kid, okay. So um, I grew up, I was born in uh, Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and was there until I was two. And then we moved to um, Gaithersburg, Montgomery Village area in Maryland. And I lived there until I was in seventh grade. And then we moved to Pennsylvania, north of Philadelphia, to a place called Doylestown. Uh, and I lived there until I went to college. Uh, and I went to college at Duke. Um, so that's the history. And then you said things that I'd like to do when I was a kid? Yeah, I mean, what did you enjoy like doing for fun? Oh, gosh. You know, um, I always... Um, I was always very uh, interested in sports from about, I'd say, uh, I don't know, fourth grade on. Uh, I played softball, I played basketball, um, I played tennis. Um, my dad was my, my coach on my softball and basketball teams. Um, yeah, um, and then we took up, uh, I guess, in fourth grade, I have, an, I have one older sister and um, she came home one day and decided she wanted to try skiing. This was when we lived in Maryland. So the whole family <laughs> packed up and, and tried skiing. And uh, we really enjoyed that. So ever since then, I've really uh, enjoyed skiing. And we didn't do, we would go skiing once or twice a year, you know, in, um, in Pennsylvania. Not a lot. I have subsequently uh, picked that up a lot more. But yeah, so growing up, I was really, um, I would say, uh, mostly interested in um, playing sports. I bet it's kind of hard to still go skiing uh, when you're living in Durham. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. Now when we ski, we go uh, out west uh, and ski out um, in Utah, actually, primarily. Yeah, yeah and so, that, I mean, that's great uh, that you were so into sports. And, you know, you said you sort of moved around a lot. But, um, you know, what brought you to Duke? You know, I know none of those places was North Carolina. So, like, uh, very curious about, like, you know, what, what made you apply to Duke? Yeah, so... Um... I guess, uh, so this was back, I'm going to date myself here, but it was back in the 80s. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Duke was an, uh, an excellent school then. Um, and so it was on my list because it was an excellent school. It kind of came onto my list, actually, honestly, because um, it's 
basketball team uh, at the time. Uh, there were some players that my dad and I would watch play. Um, uh, Spinar Glenjaminski, it doesn't matter who. But anyways, <laughs> we really enjoyed watching them, and it was one of the teams we watched. And then um, in addition to that, um, when I was looking at different schools, I had looked at several schools in the Northeast, and I... Um, Wanted to get away from the cold weather, actually. <laughs> so I wanted to have an excellent school that had um, good, excellent academics, as well as a lot of other fun things happening. Um, and so it was on my list. And then when we went and toured, I just fell in love with the campus. And um, really, that's what motivated me to, to go, was just the campus was I don't know. It was amazing. I had a lovely tour and I thought this is the place for me. It just felt right. Yeah. It's hard to say no when you see the chapel and stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. It's just beautiful. It's a, you know, it's a beautiful place. It's, and I never left. I mean, well I did, I was Air Force ROTC um, to pay for school. And so I left uh, for my Air Force service, but then I came back to graduate school and uh, never left after that. It's just beautiful. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so we definitely wanted to dive into your um, Air Force service uh, in a bit, but I've heard through Pratt trivia lore that you are the only Pratt professor to have their name in Cameron. Um, uh, is oh. this true? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it is true that my name is in Cameron, my maiden name, uh, Catherine Lynn Radabaugh. Um, I play, I was a walk-on on the women's basketball team my freshman year. Wow. Um, yeah, and so that was a really wonderful experience. It was, um, yeah, it was it was very fun. But it was, um, uh, I set the bench, right? I mean, I was a walk on. Um, <laughs> we we had a we had a really good team. I mean, we were like at one point ranked seventeenth in the nation um, during that time. Wow. Um, and we made the NIT tournament at the. Uh, end of the year, we didn't make the NCAA tournament, but there was an NIT tournament that, that we made and traveled to, and that was like a really wonderful experience and, and very fun. But, you know, at the end of the season, a coach sat me down and she said, you know, if you work really hard um, by your senior year, you might be able to be backup point guard. And I was like, you know... <laughs> I'm in engineering. It's a lot of work. I'm in Air Force ROTC. That's also a lot of time. It just, it didn't make sense for me to continue. I wasn't quite good enough, you know, to justify the time commitment. Um, so yeah, so I was a walk-on for one year. <laughs> wow. That sounds fun. It also yeah. sounds like you had a lot going on. What, what other stuff were you involved in as an undergrad? And then also, how did you kind of get into engineering? Was that something you knew before you, um, decided to come to Duke or something you found once you were here? Yeah, no. So why an engineer? You know, um, my high school counselor uh, said to me, um, you know, you are good at science and math. You should think about engineering. And before that, I was a junior. Uh, before that time, I had never really, I mean, I always loved math. It was my favorite subject. Um, but I hadn't really, uh, didn't know what engineers did or what they were about. Um, and he recommended this, they had this, this camp um, in, um, in New Jersey, Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, anyways, there was a week long camp um, for, for women who were maybe interested in science and math. Um, and my, my counselor said, you should go. And my parents were like, sure, we'll send you to that. And I went there. Um, and we did, it was really cool, you know, is do some labs, meet some people, talk to people. Duke does a lot of these things now for um, uh, different programs. Anyways, and I loved it. And I came back and said, I want to be an electrical engineer. That was awesome. And that's what I want to be. <laughs> um, and so then that motiva motivated me to, that gave me some direction when applying to colleges, you know, that I wanted to go to a college that had an engineering school. Um, uh, and I also was looking to pay for college, and uh, it turned out that at the time, uh, Air Force ROTC scholarships uh, were predominantly awarded in the electrical engineering space, and so <laughs> that was even more synergistic um, with kind of what I wanted to do and how I would uh, be able to pay for school. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I was just about to ask. Why did you join ROTC? But yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, it was a, a, and at the time, it was a full scholarship to Duke. Um, they have changed. There's uh, ROTC has different wow. commitments now, and it's uh, doesn't. I don't. I don't think anymore it covers the full tuition, but at the time it did. Um, so that was wonderful, and I wanted to 
pay my way through school. So I, I felt really good about that. It was, you know, an opportunity open to me. So yeah, how was that experience? You know, it sounds like you were involved in so much. I mean, it must have been, I guess, at some times, like hard to balance, it sounds like. I would say, you know, freshman year, um, because doing ROTC and playing basketball and um, adjusting to college, uh, yeah, that was a lot. It took a lot of discipline. There was yeah. not a lot <laughs> else going on for me. <laughs> I wasn't, um, you know. Uh, Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, as Becky knows, it was multiple hours a day of basketball practice. And then ROTC has its has also commitments to class you take. And then it has um, some, some weekly time commitments as well. Um, uh, so um, after, I would say after freshman year, when I was no longer playing basketball, I felt like I had infinite time. I mean, I was amazed at the amount of time that I had. Freshman year was pretty intense. Um, but then after that... Um, you know, ROTC is a very reasonable uh, time commitment um, for, uh, um, and lots of interesting courses, leadership courses and things like that. It's, it's a, it was very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I don't know how you did freshman year with all of those commitments, but hey, it looks like you survived, right? Yeah. <laughs> Although I will say my grades improved sophomore year. <laughs> right. I sure, did. sure. When I had more time, <laughs> I got better grades. That was totally true. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, we would love to hear more about what it was like at Duke when you were a student, like what kind of traditions or things that, you know, we still are familiar with that, that happened when you were a student. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I guess some differences, maybe not the same, but differences when I was a freshman. And this was before I walked on, right? When I came to Duke, I was they didn't know I was going to try out for the basketball team. But it turned out that I was assigned to Wanamaker. So um, I lived on West Campus all four years, um, which is different because now, right, all freshmen live on East Campus. Mm-hmm. Um so that, uh, I mean, it was lovely living on West. I, I enjoyed that. It was nice. Um, very close to everything. Um, what else? You know, um, going to the men's basketball games was very different. Um, because when I played, they would let the, because, you know, we were practicing up to game time and things. They, we were able to uh, go watch the games without waiting in line. That was a benefit of nice (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) was lovely yeah that saved me some time (laughs) um but then um after that when I was no longer playing um the you know there was there were no like rules like when you camped out back in that day it was only for maybe two days because there was like you didn't know you never left um, you stayed there the whole time and you never left and you didn't, you, uh, usually just camped out, you know, the day before and the day of, cause you didn't want to miss too many classes and you couldn't like leave right. and go to class and come back. It was, it was a line. That sounds so reasonable. <laughs> it was a line. It's like, so it is interesting to me how, I mean, it's, um, interesting to watch, uh, all of the, how, how kind of Kayville works now. Uh, it did exist back then and, and people did, um, sometimes brought tents, but it was never for like weeks at a time like it is now. It was very, very different, I would say. Um, what else was the same and different? Well, I took classes in Hudson, um, <laughs> just like okay, students wow. do now. Yeah. CMOS didn't exist. The LSRC didn't exist. Um, the food was not nearly as amazing. I, I mean, I thought it was great. You know, I'd go, we, uh, we had, we called it uh, the pits and the blue room, which are not, don't exist anymore, but they are in the area where the eatery is now. Um, uh, and also the Bryan Center was, was there, you know, so I think our food options were not nearly as nice as they are sure. for everyone now, but it was still in the same places. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, no, that, that's really cool to hear. We've spoken to a few other professors who also did their undergrads at Duke and like through like, I guess, different generations of professors. Um, and it's kind of cool to hear how with how their response is different from each other and just kind of reflecting on how that's <laughs> similar and different from our experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, downtown Durham has changed a lot since I was an undergrad as well. Yeah, my experience mostly was was on campus. Um, you know, my, my I I 
aside for, you know, sporting events or ROTC events or whatever, we didn't really, um, everything socially was kind of on campus. I didn't branch out as much off, off campus as I think students do now or, or as I hope that they do now because now that I live in Durham, I, I love downtown Durham. It's very fun, but uh, I only recently, you know, in the past maybe 10 to 15 years have started really um, spending a lot of time downtown. Yeah, that's yeah, that sounds awesome. I mean, it's it's really cool that it must be cool for you to like, you know, see the see how Duke has changed over these years. I mean, oh yeah, some things are still the same though. You know, we're, Carolina has always been our rival. <laughs> <I'm> sure, <laughs> that remains that that <laughs> that has not changed. <laughs> yeah, and so earlier you mentioned also that you know um, you left Duke for a little bit um, and you know uh, to join the Air Force. And how was that? And sort of what led up to those, you know, senior year, what were you thinking? What was going through your head? Oh, uh, gosh. Well, um, the way Air Force ROTC scholarships worked at the time and still do um, are uh, ROTC will pay for your school or uh, whatever the equation is now. But they they pay for school and then you have a a commitment, a four-year commitment to serve um, active duty. And so that I knew as, you know, I knew as a freshman that would be the case. Um, So I was fully expecting to to go do that. Um, and so, um, you get state, like, uh, you are assigned, you know, basically where they need an engineer to go. You, you don't really pick where you're going to go. You get to say, Oh, I think it'd be fun to go here, 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 there, but you get assigned. Um, and so I was stationed in San Antonio, Texas at Kelly Air Force Base. Um, yeah. And it was, uh, that also was a really, um, interesting experience. It was, um, you know, very different than um, anything I had done before. Sure. <laughs> I was a program engineer. Um, so Kelly Air Force Base uh, was a logistics base, um, and they had a lot of uh, civilians. Um, and then they had a few military, uh, like a few officers in there working with civilians. So it was nice because I had people to um, who also were program engineers that uh, could kind of uh, help me move into that position. Um, but my, uh, job was to work with companies that, uh, the Air Force had contracted with to build, they were building, um, test equipment for weapons release systems. That was the, uh, project I was on. And I, I was kind of overseeing the, the contractors and, um, what they were doing as they were building the test equipment and making sure that they were, um, doing what, you know, the contract had said. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. I'm from Texas, so I, I'm from Dallas, so uh, big, big Texas fan. It's... I think all, all Texas people are big Texas fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, San Antonio, remember how I said, like, I left the Northeast in Pennsylvania because I didn't want to be uh, cold, and then I went to North Carolina, and San Antonio is even warmer, so that, I was pleased to get stationed there because... <laughs> Because the climate is beautiful down there. It was yeah. very nice. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, definitely better than Dallas, I'd say. <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna weigh in that. <laughs> so after you finished your service in the Air Force, mm-hmm. you came back to Duke to do your PhD, right? Yes, I did. Yes. So up to this point it seems like you had a very electrical engineering kind of software development track and then you I guess decided to do your PhD in biomedical engineering. I did. So that was um a choice because when I got out of the Air Force, so in the middle of all that I had gotten married to my husband who I had met at Duke, who was a uh 2 years ahead of me and was a graduate student at Duke. Um and so when I got done with the Air Force, I was interested in living in the same state with my husband. Makes sense. Um, And so, (laughs) yeah. Um, And so um, I wanted to come back to North Carolina um, because he was still still working towards his PhD. Um, And so um, kind of concurrently, what I, the jobs that were readily available to me as an Air Force officer, uh, you know, a, a, um, someone who's getting out of the Air Force who had experience with uh, being a program engineer um, were a lot of jobs in, in defense. And I um, uh, wanted to get back to doing to doing more engineering, not doing management um, of project, kind of project management, which is really more what that job was like in the Air Force. 
Um, and I also um, was interested, um, I, my, my kind of passion in undergrad was signal processing. I really liked signal processing. And at the time that I got out of the Air Force, um, uh, you know, the spaces where there was opportunity were in the telecommunications industry and in, the, in medical imaging, um, in addition to defense. Um, and so um, coming back to North Carolina, um, kind of looking at what was possible, I thought I really wanted to get into medical imaging. So I actually took a job as a research assistant in a, a lab actually at Duke. Um, in the Center for In Vivo Microscopy, working with James McFall and Al Johnson at their, um, uh, in the Department of Radiology. And really enjoyed that. They gave, I had this really cool project where I was, was basically writing code and, and coding um, some different image processing uh, kind of algorithms for some of the data that they had. And it was really fun and I, I really wanted to stay in the kind of hands-on doing space. Um, and so then I applied to graduate school once I kind of tried that out and was like, yeah, I'd really rather do this. This is what I want to be doing. Um, and so that's then when I uh, applied to graduate school. Wow, that's awesome. I, I wanted to ask a question about kind of your, like broadly your experience, both in as an electrical engineer and then in the military and then coming back to do your PhD in engineering. Um, those are typically, then even more than now, kind of male-dominated fields. How was, what was your experience like being a woman in those fields? Um, and did you face any challenges because of that? Um, so, you know, um, yes, you are right. There uh, were not a lot of women um, uh, in electrical engineering at the time when I did my undergrad. I did not feel any... Um, I, it was, I didn't really even notice, you know, that it didn't really phase me. Um, there was a cohort, I did have a cohort of friends that I kind of studied with, um, and they were men and women. Um, there was about, I don't know, maybe four of us, um, four or five of us, you know, depending on the class and who you're in with, that we kind of went through together. Um, uh, and actually, a few of those people were in the Air Force with me as well, or Force ROTC. So I had this kind of cohort that we were going through together with. Um, that's really yeah, cool. it was great. And um, that's why when I teach my classes, I always encourage students to study together. <laughs> I think it's really useful. Um, I would agree. <laughs> but um, yeah, right? I mean, it really, if you don't understand something, someone can help you. And if you do and you teach it, you understand it even more. It, it's just... A good way to go especially in bme it seems like i don't know i'm biased though <laughs> i think in engineering yeah particularly with subjects that um you know can be more challenging where you're working through problems and people can approach them so differently and see them so differently that's just really useful but anyways um so with respect to the um being a woman question um and were there any challenges i would say i didn't really notice uh I obviously noticed that there were fewer women in my classes, but I did not feel disadvantaged in any way in those classes. Yeah. I will say, though, um, one of the... I have wondered in hindsight, um, I loved signal processing. I also had one of my only female faculty was uh, taught my signals and systems class. And then I subsequently took an independent study with her. And in hind, like at the time, I wasn't thinking, oh, maybe I only like this class because, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a role model here. I... I never had that thought, but in hindsight, I've been like, huh, I wonder, but actually I really do enjoy the material. So I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> if that somehow fed, fed into my interest in, in signal processing. Um, but in any case, uh, I did not, I really didn't feel any disadvantage. When I was in the Air Force, um, I, th I think um, being one of few women both opened doors for me as well as I was aware that there weren't other women for me to kind of bounce ideas off of as, as often particularly in the um in the air force where I was stationed um most of the partly because as I was saying earlier it was a logistics space and so there were very few new officers there um because there were a lot of civilians doing we were all doing similar work um uh so there were not a lot of women there um, and that was uh, interesting, not so much from the Air Force, but just from, uh, you know, my first time being away from, like, out of college and totally away from home and in this new city. And um, I found uh, friends kind of outside of the Air Force and um, outside of the base. Um, 
to have, I guess, the social support from women that I was interested in finding. Um, but it wasn't, uh, again, was never really a problem on the base. Uh, I did not feel um, disadvantaged, I would say. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. Yeah. And then coming back, you know, academia is very, uh, I have found very friendly um, and, and kind of a, a wonderful environment, at, at least at Duke and, and kind of broadly in all of my collaborations. Um, and I do, I wouldn't say, I, I mean, I do think um, because there are not a lot of women in STEM, there have been many doors open to me as a woman in STEM, um, which has been uh, wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it, it is. I also have um, wonderful colleagues and collaborators um, you know, and you do, I mean, another one of the nice things about academia um, is that you can pick, um, you know, you often pick who you collaborate with, you reach out to people, you find people that you work well with and have strong collaborations. And so, um, again, I've, I've just been I, um, very lucky in that I've always enjoyed the people I'm working with. And yeah, so I was more interested in asking about you mentioned that you were your interest lied in signal processing. How did you, you know, I've heard through Becky, you know, your lab is focused on ultrasound. How did you get involved in sort of um, doing research on ultrasound? Uh, so, as I said, I uh, had taken this kind of gap year job when I got out of the Air Force while my husband was still finishing his degree. And I was working in a radiology lab doing uh, coding and image processing. Um, and I enjoyed that. So I thought, oh, well, I want to apply to graduate school in medical imaging. This is now what I want to do. Um, but I also wanted to uh, stay at Duke uh, because my husband was here. Um, and so I looked at the programs that um, were uh, that existed at Duke. And Duke has a, a really long history of having an excellent um, kind of research space in, in ultrasound imaging where uh, we've had, um, you know, many of the kind of visionary leaders of the ultrasound diagnostic ultrasound imaging community have ha, were at Duke uh, and have been at Duke. And so it was just kind of a no brainer to apply to that program. Um, and it worked out that there was a slot for me. So <laughs> um, that was, uh, it was partly because like why ultrasound? Because that was the opportunity that was here uh, at Duke that worked out with my interest in medical imaging um, and signal processing um, and the location where I wanted to be. That's awesome. We like to ask this question to a lot of our guests, but if you were on NPR morning radio and uh, they asked you to describe the, the impact of your research or what your research was about um, briefly, how, how would you respond to that? Okay, so um, the, my, my research uh, is in ultrasound imaging, um, but um, I kind of over the course of my career and with my colleagues at Duke, particularly Greg Trahey, um, we have uh, pioneered uh, the use of acoustic radiation force um, for, uh, as a mechanism to make uh, images of the elastic properties of tissue, of the elasticity of tissue. So um, elasticity imaging um, is a, a broad field where um, rather than making pictures of the acoustic properties of tissue or the x-ray attenuation, you know, what kind of standard accepted imaging modalities make, um, the idea behind elasticity imaging is that you introduce some kind of mechanical perturbation like a shaking or a vibration in the tissue um, and then you monitor with imaging how the tissue responds to that perturbation, that excitation, um, and then you uh, kind of use some mathematical modeling to relate um, the tissue's response to its underlying material properties. Um, and so what we have, have worked on and, and developed is this um, help to pioneer, I would say, is this idea of using focused ultrasound as the mechanical perturbation. Up until that time, elasticity imaging had been done primarily with external compression plates or with external vibrators to introduce that mechanical perturbation. And what we really pioneered and worked on with a couple other labs throughout the world, but um, there are a few of us working in this space, but was to use focused ultrasound to introduce that mechanical perturbation. And that had, and then use ultrasound to monitor the response. And that had many advantages over kind of what had been done to date. Um, and so um, with respect to impact, um, I think um, what is kind of exciting about what we've done is we've always been on the um, 
the translational side, um, we, we, I have an, a very experimental lab where we uh, have an idea, code it up on a system, and then go try it, see if it works, and then go image people and see how well it works and see if it's um, useful information that we're providing to clinicians. And um, that is, has gone very well. So our technology um, has translated uh, onto commercial systems, and it's used now, ultrasound systems, um, used now pretty widely for um, staging liver fibrosis because it turns out as the, uh, the liver's response to disease um, is to develop scarring. And scarring, as you can imagine, scars are, are stiffer. Um, whenever you get a scar, it, it's, it feels stiffer than the surrounding tissue. That also happens in the liver. And so instead of doing biopsies and sticking needles in, um, people can now use our, our stiffness imaging approach and it helps to uh, assess the health of the liver. So that would be, I'd say, um, the biggest um, uh, the biggest success in clinical translation of the uh, imaging modalities that we've been working on and developing over the over the years, um, and then we of course are working, as you know, Becky, uh, we're working and looking at how can we extend this technology to other things. So um, we're looking at muscle imaging now um, and seeing what we can do to provide clinicians. Um, uh, information, different information than they currently have about kind of muscle health and all, of course, non-invasively. Um, so to avoid, uh, mostly what we're trying to do with the imaging is avoid having to do biopsy or having to be more invasive um, and be able to provide information to doctors um, that helps them make decisions um, in ways that are much more pleasant for the patient to tolerate. <laughs> Right. I was going to say, I should have been able to answer this question on my own, but I figured I would, I would ask it to you. Um, <laughs> But I wanted to ask, I, I, it seems like you kind of entered the field of acoustic radiation force impulse at a really cool time where you kind of saw the technology transform from something that was mostly theoretical at the time into something that's used clinically now. What, what did that feel like and how, how was it to see that ball rolling and kind of pick up momentum as you were really seeing it used in patients? Yeah, I mean, it was... It was really exciting. You know, there's a lot of, as you say, there, well, you didn't quite say this, but there is luck and timing involved in everything, right? Um, and you're right, kind of right place, right time. We had the um, experimental um, capabilities to try this out. It turned out that, um, you know, who knows, luck. Um, we happened to try this on a scanner um, that didn't quite have enough acoustic power, so we threw some capacitors on there. Dr. Palmieri can kind of tell you about that. He had joined the group at this time, put these capa like extra <laughs> capacitors so we had more power, um, and that worked. Um, and then the transducers we were using, it turned out, were robust, so they were able to generate the energy that we needed. Um, kind of in the middle years, there were some... Uh, early research scanners that didn't have the same capabilities that the scanners we were working on did. So had we like tried it on those, it probably wouldn't have worked. We would have, you know, <laughs> walked away from the idea, but it did work with the scanners that we tried. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, luck and timing, I would say, um, in being, you know, keeping doors open, being right place, right time. But um, uh, it, it, was really fun um, to see it work. We also uh, synergistically, um, uh, Greg Trey had started, and I um, also uh, our our labs have this research agreement with a, a manufacturer, which gave us access to the inside of scanners, so we could reprogram them and make them that that gave us the experimental capabilities, um, and it also made it easier to translate because when we um, had a cool idea and came upon and demonstrated that it worked, it already worked on a system uh, that existed. So that made it easier for to, to translate to commercial systems. So it was very, yeah, super rewarding, like really exciting when we first saw, when we saw the first um, displacement that we were able to measure in tissue and it, it like made sense to us. That was really exciting. We're like, oh, look, we, <laughs> we, we can actually push on tissue and we can see, we can see a shear wave. That's really cool. Um, yeah, so it was, it's been exciting. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. As, as an aspiring MSTP student, that translation just sounds like heaven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, uh, it, it is, uh, yeah, it, it's fun. I would say I've been very, again, lucky to um, 
be in a place where doing all these uh, fun kind of experiments and trying things out is, is possible. Um, and uh, also, mm-hmm. you know, being at Duke where we're so close to our engineering school is so close to the yeah. hospital that really enables us to um, try things out in ways that could be more challenging somewhere else. So, yeah. As you were going, you know, from being a student in this space to sort of becoming a faculty member and having your own lab, um, you know, what were you thinking? What was your vision, both like academically and also like what you wanted your research environment to be? Because I know that, you know, that can be a really exciting thing. You know, what was your vision for how, how you were going to set up your lab and what you were going to, pri- what things you were going to prioritize? Well, um... <laughs> sorry, so big question. <laughs> My vision, I would say, um, so I guess my backing up my thesis work was using radiation force. So it was similar to elasticity imaging, but it was, um, uh, the, the first idea was to use it to stir fluid in, in breast cysts. So basically, um, breast cysts are fluid filled masses. And if you, uh, most often, if you can determine that they are fluid and not solid, um, then uh, often uh, clinicians will just kind of watch them or not worry about them because breast cysts tend to be benign. It's solid masses that might be malignant or benign. Um, and so our idea was, well, could we use radiation force? Could we focus the sound, uh, use the absorbed energy to st- swirl, stir the fluid? And then ultrasound um, systems have Doppler processing, which can monitor flow. Um, mm-hmm. And so to use kind of standard methods on methodology on the scanner to see it moving and say, yeah, that's a fluid-filled cyst. So that was kind of my early thesis work. So then transitioning into... Um, uh, becoming a research faculty member, because I went from my thesis work um, to uh, working as a, a research, uh, assistant research professor for a while, and then I transitioned into going tenure track. Um, and so in the interim period, um, Greg and I had uh, written a grant, I had written a, a grant on this idea that, hey, uh, instead of doing this to stir fluid, we could, we hypothesized we could push on tissue with this, and that that would be useful in the elasticity imaging space. And so, um, the kind of the science led to writing the grant. We got the grant, so that said, oh, I can stay. We <laughs> that, that created the space. Um, and then um, as as kind of we uh, were having some successes, uh, it um, it became clear that this was you know a, a research opportunity. This idea of using acoustic radiation force to perturb tissue and see what happens to get more information about the tissue, that just became clear that there's an awful big um, opportunity space uh, for developing this technology. Um, and that was when then it made sense. Um, and there was a, an open uh, an open position. The department was looking to hire someone. Um, and so I interviewed for that position because I just had this, um, it was clear that there was a lot that could be done to develop this technology and that there was just kind of a clear research direction for that. So that was the, the vision came from the initial experiments that then kind of opened up that door. Wow, that's, that's really awesome. Cool. From, from speaking with <laughs> other um, faculty who have done a similar, you know, PhDs and postdoc type thing and then gone into having their own labs, we've heard people express the feeling of they kind of miss the, like the hands-on experience of being kind of in the trenches of the, the science during their the PhD. Do you ever miss that? Uh, or is that something you experience as a PI? Yes. You know, I think, um, as I was saying, you know, when I got out of the Air Force and then I took that job where I was coding, I was like, oh, I love doing it. Like, I love the being here. I love the doing. And then when I got my PhD and I was doing the experiments and, you know, making the phantoms and, and then working with the patients, it was very, I enjoyed all of that. Um, I think um, as a PI, well, it's, I, I mean, when you get started, you're, you're doing all of that. Um, <laughs> and then as you, you know, bring more people into your lab and um, uh, end up with more administrative responsibilities and also you add teaching. Um, and I really enjoyed teaching. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to stay in academia, um, in addition to working on a really cool research project, was that I enjoy um, teaching, I had always thought that was something I might want to do. And so that just kind of, again, all worked out right place, right time, you know, um, by keeping doors open, I would say. Um, 
So anyways, but as you have more and more on your plate that you are responsible for, it becomes impossible to um, keep doing everything. <laughs> um, and I think uh, that is something that um, academia is funny. You, you get really good at doing the science and then your next job is not doing, it's managing. And you know, managing is really different than doing. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, actually, um, I did use and, and do still use some of the kind of leadership training experience that I got out of the Air Force. I, that was really handy uh, early days because otherwise I would not wow, really have had okay. any of that. Yeah. So that was actually useful um, to, to kind of help me transition into the role more of um, kind of mentor managing things as opposed to being the one doing them. Um, it is a hard transition though. Uh, uh, yeah, it is tough. I think everyone, I think everyone misses it. <laughs> but then I, I, you know, I don't miss some of the frustrating days where, you know, the equipment's just not working <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's really frustrating. <laughs> that, that I, it's nice not to have that, that immediate frustration right, right there. That, that is kind of one of the benefits. <laughs> Yeah, and you mentioned teaching. That's actually what we wanted to dive into next. I mean, I know that okay. you teach one of the quote-unquote hallmark classes, BME classes at Duke, you know, BME 354, something that everyone mm -hmm. looks forward to. How, how has that been? You know, how did you get involved? I mean, it, it makes sense due to your sort of um, background in signal processing and things like that, that you um, are teaching that class. But, you know, what do you enjoy about that? And how has that experience been? Well, you know, um, I think... The thing that I really like about teaching that class is that for many students, it's the first, I love that it's a lab class. For many students, mm -hmm. it's the first time that all the required, you know, you have to learn signals and systems and you have to take uh, intro to circuits and instrument, like all the introductory class classes come together and we use pieces of each of them to build these medical devices that we get to build in the lab. And I think it's really fun for the, for, um, I think it's fun. The feedback I get from a lot of the students is that it's fun because it's the time when they're kind of bringing everything together synergistically and applying it and like building a device, building something. Um, and a lot of students will say this is the first time, and that this isn't true anymore, I think, because we now have the freshman design class. And so students are often mm -hmm. building something in their freshman year before they get to 354, but um, kind of, prior to that, which has been, I'm thrilled that we have added that to the, um, the program. Um, but prior to that, this was often the first class where students were, felt that they were building and using engineering equipment in a very hands-on way. And it was really fun to be a part of that because mm -hmm. a lot of students really enjoy that. Yeah, I completely agree. We've actually spoken about 354 a few times in other podcasts and like, I couldn't agree more. That was like the first class where I was like, oh, this is what engineers do. Okay, I kind of <laughs> like it now. Yeah. <laughs> but kind of a fun question. So if you all of a sudden tomorrow could, you know, you woke up and you could no longer be a uh, research, a professor, a researcher and a professor, um, couldn't do anything in the field, <laughs> what would you, what would you do? As in like, like what kind of, what other job would you perhaps Wow. <laughs> I have been doing this, you know, for many years. <laughs> um, what would I do? Okay, so if I was no longer a professor, ha, huh, that's, you know, that's really interesting. Um, I wonder, so this is going to sound funny because they're very, very different. I have thought, you're probably going to crack up. So certainly teaching is something that um, I would, I, I think teaching uh, maybe high school, um, not younger, but high school <laughs> uh, might be one, one path. Um, um, you know, and I really do enjoy um, math. <laughs> um, so maybe teaching calculus, I think, I thought that would be interesting. Um, Maybe, uh, and then the other things that are coming to mind are maybe psychology, being a psychologist or a social worker helping people um, with challenges, um, or maybe being an accountant because of all the math there. <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> one of those, I'd say. Well, I think it shows that, you know, that you're struggling or you're thinking, you have to think is indication that you enjoy your current job so much. So I feel like that's a sign. <laughs> I, I do. Yeah, I, I do. It is, um, it's a really fun job. Yeah. And, you know, more of sort of these uh, more lighthearted questions. Uh, it sounds like you're sort of really involved in sort of your research and teaching. And But what do you do sort of outside of um, the classroom and outside of the lab to sort of keep yourself balanced? Yeah. So, um, well, it's funny uh, that you asked me that now. Um, my son is uh, uh, in college now. Um, he's taking a gap year during COVID, but he's in college now. Um, and so... Prior to that, being a parent was a huge chunk of, of what I did. Um, mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> I really, uh, in, I really enjoyed being a mom, and um, it was that was a big other piece of me. I would say, uh, now that he's in college, um, that uh, isn't time consuming in any way, um, and so um, <laughs> I would say um, also uh, back to the sports, that has always kind of carried me, though different now, I um, I mean, I shoot hoops in the backyard, but I haven't played basketball um, competitively since, since my son was born, so that's been 20 years now, um, but I do, um, I enjoy uh, windsurfing um, and surfing. Wow and skiing. I've recently gotten into mountain biking. I used to run, but um, I'm getting away from high impact things. So, um, you know, I'm kind of a beginner mountain biker, but I really enjoy that. I love to be outside. Um, I find that I have to get outside every day and just do something outside. Especially during COVID, I feel like that's the most important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it just, (laughs) my mental outlook is so much better when I just kind of get outside and am outside for a little bit and come back. And so, um, so I'd say, yeah, really, uh, the other things that I do for fun are are more in the kind of being outside sports arena. Um, And with COVID, really mountain biking, you know, mountain biking, there's a lot of fun mountain biking in Durham. Um, Mountain biking, um, and then, um, of course, windsurfing, um, surfing, and, and skiing. <laughs> Those are the things I really enjoy. That's it's cool that you, know, you ended up in North Carolina, that you're able to do all three of those yeah. um, sports, I guess, in relative proximity. Yes. Yeah, I was about to say, like, Durham sounds like the perfect place for, you know, those uh, hobbies. <laughs> it is. That's, you know, that's, I came to Durham and I, well, but for the Air Force, never left. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one question, another question that we like to ask is um, if you had any piece of advice that you would um, give to an incoming engineering student or an engineering student that's about to graduate. Only one, huh? <laughs> that's fair. You, you, um, you can give multiple pieces of advice I well. would say, no, no, <laughs> no, no I, I would say, um, I think one really useful thing is to as a freshman, you know, keep doors open. I, I mean, at any point in life, but particularly when you're starting, you know, um, keep as many doors open as you can and don't, a lot of people come, a lot of people come with kind of a, I, since I was three, I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to do this and this is the thing I'm doing. And my advice would be that's, that's great. It's nice to be directed, but be open, like try to be open to other opportunities. There are a lot of choices and things available to people that were to me along my, you know, my career path that I had no idea were going to be there when I was making my plan, you know. Um, But by being open to, um, hey, I'm really enjoying the signals and systems class. Like I had no idea that was going to be something I liked when I started college, but being open to that, like, oh, so what could this lead to and um, seeing where it went and being okay with giving yourself the opportunity to try things that maybe weren't on your radar to begin with, but just try them. If they don't work out, it's, it's okay. <laughs> you know, uh, don't let fear of either deviating from your trajectory or fear of failing stop you if something is is interesting and sparking your your curiosity and interest give it give it a try go for it um so i would say that's my advice keep keep doors open be open to new things um i uh 
I at one point remember um, advice from one of my my mentors. Um, we were we were talking about particularly. I was having a particularly frustrating day, and um, uh, what he said to me was, you know, one of the best things about um, being an academic because it's got so many different um, so many different pieces to it, you know. Um, was how it pushes you outside of your comfort zone multiple times a day. And on that particular day, I thought a few less would be better. <laughs> but broadly, um, I totally agree with that perspective. The more I allow myself to kind of reach out beyond what I would think I'd be comfortable with, you know, the more interesting things I experience. Um, and so encouraging people to, to kind of reach out and try those different things that maybe weren't what they were thinking of initially, I think often that can lead to really fun, interesting experiences. And I would, that's my advice. Try it. Just try it. Don't worry. That about sounds it. like excellent advice. <laughs> I think every <laughs> incoming student should hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also what sort of a question along those lines, I guess, um, if you were, if you were, if you were an undergrad at Duke right now, like what would you like seeing how Duke has changed and the opportunities that are available now, like what would you, want to do or what would you be interested in either academically or non-academically like, you know anything I did not study abroad um that was not something uh, with kind of with all my other commitments that was open to me um and we also didn't have these um kind of summer programs that let you really uh expand like you know mm, like the yeah. Duke Engage programs I, I do think yeah. those have been really cool for students um, you know that when they again it's like this outside your comfort zone going somewhere new or different and hearing students kind of reactions and the thing they things they learn just being in a new space that is different than your standard kind of space that you're in I feel like that is something I would want to take advantage of that just um, was not something that I, I did back in the day when I was an undergrad. Um, so I think a lot of the more maybe international experiences or even just experiences where you end up um, being able to do kind of programs that put you somewhere out, kind of out, mm -hmm. outside of the space, I, I think that would be really, um, would be fun. I also think it'd be fun, my husband and I joke about this, um, I think I have a different perspective on um, I would probably... Um, I don't know that I'd want to get a minor. I didn't get a minor. And I don't think I'd want to get a minor. I just feel like there's so many really cool classes that are not at all related to my major that it would be really fun to take. Um, and I think at the time, I was a little intimidated to, to take, you know, more advanced classes in different departments that were not mine. And I might be a little more willing to, um, to try that you know, um, to, to try some of these, because Duke's just got so many amazing faculty in so many different areas that I would want to maybe take a little more advantage of that as opposed to kind of keeping my head down in the engineering mm -hmm. space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think a lot of engineers today also feel the same way, so. Yeah. One more kind of heavier question, I guess, before we, we wrap up. Um, you mentioned a few times in your advice, like not not being afraid of failing and, and kind of going for it and, and being being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, can you tell us about a time that you maybe like failed in your career at some point and you, like a lesson that you've learned from that experience? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We're dropping bombs on you. Like. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think about that. So I guess, um, I think one, one thing, this is uh, interesting, it's not exactly a, a career changer per se, but it was a really interesting experience that made me kind of step back and rethink things. Um, you know, as a, a faculty member, you're an advisor, you're assigned advisees, um, and your role is to uh, advise you know students primarily in their academics but a lot of times they will bring questions um, bigger questions what should I do with my life you, you know I mean it, 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 you, you end up being mentoring in in, in many spaces and um, 
I had an advisee many years ago and um, the I ended up answering or kind of sharing my perspective, but my perspective was uh, this advisee was not um, uh, was a, a, a student, a, a foreign student, and I was bringing kind of a um, the perspective like I was building on my experience in what I was saying. And the student said, well, all Americans say that, but, you know, I'm not American. And so I don't feel this. And I was like, wow, I was young. Right. But still, I, I that was very. Um, I felt like, wow, I really failed the student because I wasn't um, appropriately kind of uh, putting myself, I wasn't able to perceive the space they were coming from. But it really changed my mentoring because I wasn't as confident with like, oh yeah, here's the three things you should try because like I have no idea, right? So I, it really made me step back and revisit what what would be the better way to mentor. It made me a much better listener. Um, it made me really try not to bring what, what like, well, if it were me, I would want this, right? Because that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for what, what they want. And so it really changed my whole approach to advising because of this, really what I thought, I mean, I was appreciated that the student said that to me, but I also felt like, wow, I really, that was terrible. I shouldn't have said that. I, I mean, I just wasn't approaching this in the right way. Um, and it had a huge impact on me on how I did things moving forward. So it was a, a failure in that I don't feel that to that moment I had done a particularly good job in advising people. <laughs> and it really changed how I, I choose to mentor people. Wow, that's really neat to hear how you were able to take an event that seems seemingly, I guess, mundane and transform it into what sounds like kind of a formative experience for you as a mentor. Um, and it's also really cool to see how seriously and how important you, you view your, your role as, as a mentor. It is, and I really enjoy it now, but I feel like I'm better at it than I used to be. <laughs> yeah, I really, no, I was just saying I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, and, you know, I, I know uh, to wrap up, we always ask like these two rapid fire questions. <laughs> so, They're a lot lighter, don't um, worry. Random, like unrelated to anything. Yeah. So uh, are you a coffee or, are you a coffee or tea drinker? And, you know, I mean, what's your, what's your, uh, do you drink like a lot of coffee every day or, you know, what's your preference? Totally. I am a coffee drinker, though I do drink both. I didn't drink coffee till I got in the Air Force. And then I had, mm. I had to be on base like at 530 in the morning. And the thing that got me there was the coffee. Like we had coffee. <laughs> I was like, okay, sure. I'm going to get there and get some coffee. <laughs> and I really, ever since then, then in grad school, lots of late nights, late hours, kept up with the coffee. Now I really enjoy coffee. I'd say three cups a day. <laughs> Not a ridiculous amount, but probably more than nice. I have a year. Seems like a solid amount, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. So the last thing we like to ask is, yeah. we do, yes, the last thing we want to ask is if, uh, what the last book that you read is and <laughs> if you have any um, book recommendations that you want to share, the books that you've read. Um, so... Right now, I'm reading The Boys in the Boat. Um, it's an older book. Uh, it's, uh, have you read it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an awesome um, book. It is Crazy an awesome story. book. Um, right, uh, an incredible and inspiring story. Um, and I'm reading it because it was recommended to me by um, my, my mom, actually. I'm impressed. Becky, like, always seems to be familiar, have, have read the books that our guests recommend. So uh, I, feel like I'm behind, I feel like I'm super behind here. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Nightingale, it was awesome to meet you. And thanks so much for uh, coming on after office hours. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Wow, that was an absolutely incredible episode. Yeah, I never knew that Dr. Nightingale sort of took that time off between her undergrad and PhD to go serve in the air. <laughs> I, I wouldn't call it quite time off. She was in the <laughs> Yeah, no, sorry, yeah. She was serving as an engineer in San Antonio, Texas, and it's really cool to hear not only that she had a really um, sort of formative time there, but also how the lessons translated to her starting her own lab and like managing other people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think it was also cool to hear that from all of the individual experiences that she talked to us about, you could really hear like individual lessons that she took from that and that were really uh, insightful for me to hear and I think for our listeners will be really useful as well. 
Yeah, I also really admire how passionate she is about, um, it seems like everything she does, and especially her research. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I also uh, liked how she mentioned some of the other things that she does for fun. Yeah. Like, it's really important to hear. She, like, mountain bikes and, and, you know, and windsurfing so and skiing. Like, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, I definitely want to go windsurfing sometime. <laughs> I know. I was. That's what I was thinking. Like, how do you learn how to windsurf? Um, yeah. Next time I go to the beach after the pandemic ends, I'm totally gonna. Try to check that out. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Be sure to uh, follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Yes, we just added that uh, at After Office Hours and on Instagram at uh, After Double Underscore Office Hours. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time.